0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Longcat Media presents The Betty Tapes Episode 4 3.30pm. Date, November the 12th, 1994. Place, my office, Mockery Manor. Small problem. I've just been totting up the profits from all my cases and... Turns out, I'm about six grand short of the desired amount. Oh, it's so unfair. I've been doing so much better recently. If I just had a few more months, I could earn the money back. But my loan is with the Unstoppable Bank of Margot, and she comes to collect in seven days' time. If I can't pay her back on the 19th, she's going to kick me out of my lovely office and force me into the family business, which was probably her plan all along. She no doubt thought I'd fail to get my PI firm off the ground. I'd come crawling back to mockery, humbled, grateful for the opportunity. Well, I am not humbled. I am not. Damn it, what do I do? I need to find six grand in the space of a week. Time to hit my contacts and find the best-paying and briefest case of my whole damn career. Time, 11-something a.m. Date, 14th of November. Place, the stinky gym room of St. Candida's School for Young Ladies. Ugh. Oh, God. Can't believe I'm back here again. This isn't even a six-grand case. It's a 150-pound case. Oh... Don't think about it, Betty. Postpone the panic. (sighs) So, what shall I call this case? How about the case of the budding master criminal? Oh, yes. My client is one Ms. Trotter, the headmistress of St. Candida's. last person I want to take a job from. She's the bloody reason I'm 6,000 quid in debt. And she's dodgy as hell. She literally blackmailed me into buying Stephen. Oh, sorry. Stephen is the name I gave to Lady Katia's foal, named after Stephen the lead singer of Fugo's Pendulum. Oh Stephen, you're costing me a fortune. Horses are so expensive. There's the stable costs, and feed, and saddling, and grooming, and vets fees, and on and on. And as I have zero savings, the cost of it all goes straight onto my debt to Margot. I should just sell him, really. But Meat's become very fond of Stephen. Meat, my cat. I often find him curled up on Stephen's back asleep. They both had such an inauspicious start to life. I just can't separate them now. He'd be too cruel. And they're so freaking cute together, it makes me want to die. <clears throat> anyway, the case. The case of the budding master criminal. I've just come from Trotter's office where she filled me in on the details. Her office hasn't changed a jot since my school days. The same huge ebony desk. The same jaundiced walls and liver-colored curtains. Same taxidermied animals cavorting in woodland tableau. And Trotter, right in the middle of it all, perched like a malevolent goblin on her leather chesterfield. So anyway, there I am, standing before her. And first thing she says to me is, Armstrong, I need you to hunt down a reprobate. Shouldn't be too hard. Takes one to know one. Birds of a feather and all that. And then before I could defend myself, although I suppose I did get in trouble rather a lot back in the day, Before I could say anything at all, she launched into a tirade about the series of incidents afflicting St. Candida's the last few months. Graffiti, teachers' cars keyed, despoiling of personal property, booby traps. Dozens of incidents, and they have no idea who's behind it. Except for a single clue left at the scene of each crime. A note detailing the sins of the victim, and thus why they deserved the attack. It seems we have a vigilante. At the bottom of each note is a signature, the letters F and U. I did point out to Trotter that F U might not be a signature, but she still insisted I start the investigation by interviewing all students whose first name starts with an F and surname starts with a U. And here's a funny thing, there's five of them, all called Florence, very common name. I have the notes here. So what I'm looking for are quirks of speech Themes and motifs, and a sense of who it is I'm dealing with. And then I'll talk to the flows. Right, I'm going in. Alright, 75 minutes and half a pack of chocolate digestives later, I've collated a series of observations. One, the handwriting is very bad. I'll wager the criminal is using their non-dominant writing hand to disguise their normal style. Two, Occasionally the criminal replaces the dot above the lowercase i's and j's with a tiny heart. A flamboyant romantic personality then. 3. The crimes and accusations themselves have a recurrent motif. Un petit peu de Robin Hood, n'est-ce pas? In one instance, the criminal scratched the word corrupt on a teacher's car and superglued a note to the hood. The note accused said teacher of taking gifts from rich pupils in exchange for lenient marking on their GCSE and A-level coursework. On another occasion, the head prefect's shoes were dusted on the inside with onion powder, a fact she only realised when her feet began to reek. She found a note in the toe of her Jimmy shoes that accused her of bullying a scholarship student for their cheap footwear. Ha! As you can imagine, that one really spoke to me. I'm starting to like this vigilante. And then we have the Graffiti Incident, and this one must have been a doozy to pull off. The Graffiti was painted on the stage curtains in the Assembly Hall, where the school plays are performed. The reveal happened at the curtain call of Last Term's performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream. The play finished, the curtains were shut, et voila! There it was, in foot-high letters. Miss Thomas licks the arse of the rich. The audience went wild. Miss Thomas was furious. Miss Thomas is the director of the school plays. I remember her from when I was a pupil. I can personally verify that she does indeed lick the arse of the rich. Everybody knew. If you wanted a decent part, then you'd better be from a good family. And in addition, thin, glossy, hootingly confident, and a total suck-up. I auditioned for the Christmas show one year. She took one look at my ill-fitting second-hand uniform and gave me the role of disgusting crone with one line. I was quite happy with that. I love a good crone. I really went to town with the warts and I spent weeks perfecting my cackle. <laughs> See? You don't get that kind of quality without hard graft and dedication. The whole thing should have been jolly good fun. But Miss Thomas was like Jekyll and Hyde. Big smiles and flattery when speaking to the leads. Positively hostile to anyone with a small part. Hmm. That gives me an idea. I'm gonna get my hands on the Midsummer Night's Dream cast list. Particularly the rude mechanicals. Who could that be? Yes? Come in. Miss Trotter told me to come and see you. She did? Who are you? Florence Updike. Miss Trotter also told me to tell you that she's sending Flo Umbridge, Florence Underwood, Flo Uckerman and Flo Upchurch to see you too. Oh, for God's sake. She couldn't just leave me to it, could she? Come in, then. Pull up a gym mat. Time. Bit later. Place. Haven't moved. As I suspected, the Flows were a total dead end. Flo Updike is only nine years old for crying out loud. <sighs> Once all the Flows arrived, I handed round paper and made them write out the lyrics to the school song. No one even questioned it. They just jolly well got on with it, which told me all I needed to know. The Flows are incurious good girls, obedient conformists. And, as suspected, None of them drew a single heart above a J or an I. I also asked for their opinion of Thatcher's dismantling of the unions in response to the miners' strike. Nothing but blank stares. Our master criminal would surely be aware of this country's crimes against the workers. The Flo's are innocent. Boringly innocent. But it wasn't a complete waste of time. Flo Underwood was in a Midsummer Night's Dream last term. So I got her to tell me the names of her fellow thesps. Who is it now? If you're called Flo, I'm not interested. Go away. I beg your pardon. Uh, uh, Hello, Miss Trotter. How can I help you? What do you think? I'd like to know which Flo to expel, of course. Ah, now about that. Time, 6pm. Place, the Borders Canteen. In front of me, a heaping plate of mashed potato. I needed something comforting. I've been rather thrown for a loop. I told Trotter my reasoning for the Flo's innocence. She was not pleased, and said she was sure the culprit was Flo Updike. Apparently, Flo's own parents warned the school that their daughter needed to be closely monitored for aberrant behaviour. Isn't that awful? But then, then, Trotter gave me a very pointed look and said... History repeats itself, does it not? I was rather confused, as you can imagine. I asked what she meant, and Trotter told me. It seems that on my first day as a boarder, my parents informed Trotter that sending me to St Candida's was, in fact, their second choice. Their first choice was a correctional facility for teenage delinquents. And the only reason they didn't send me there was because because my Auntie Janet stepped in. She begged my parents for leniency on my behalf and promised that she'd pay the school fees in return. Auntie Janet saved me. I can't quite believe it. I'd always thought that Janet and my parents conspired to send me to the worst place they could think of. God, I was so angry at her for getting involved. I never replied to any of her letters or returned her phone calls. I thought she was a busybody. But it would have been so much worse for me if she hadn't got involved. (laughs) Oh, and it gets worse. When I started here, my parents gave Trotter my diary. My diary. I remember I thought I'd lost the bloody thing. But no, my darling parents had not only read my private thoughts... But they also made sure that Trotter was aware of the... strange fixation I had developed on a classmate at my old school. Just in case it happened again. God. I remember always being told by the teachers to sit at a different table to my friends. I thought it was because I was too chatty. But it was probably because they... How could they? Janet wouldn't have read my diary. Or thought badly of me because of my... ...aberrant behaviour. She just wanted to protect me. Oh, Janet. I'm so, so sorry. If only I'd known before. Trotter also told me how much the school fees are. Heesh. However did Janet afford it? Oh, God. must have been wizard money. Of course. Oh, Janet. You naughty old thing. Time, 11.54pm. Date, 19th of November. Place, my office, Mockery Manor. Well, this is it. Six minutes to go. And I don't have the money to repay my debt. Soon I'll have to bid goodbye to my freedom. Goodbye to you, my lovely office. Goodbye to the filing cabinets that had only just started filling up with case notes. Goodbye to my dictaphone. Actually, I'm not giving this up. I'll put this in my handbag. Margot will never know. Oh, I solved the case, by the way. Fat lot of good that's done me. The culprit was Bottom, of course. The flashiest of the rude men from A Midsummer Night's Dream, the most audacious the most passionate, a leader of men. Of course it was bottom. Or rather, Claire Urquhart, the 16-year-old girl who played the role. I knew as soon as I started interviewing her that she was the culprit. Claire has the watchful aura of the truly cunning, the quiet self-assurance of someone driven by a singular purpose. And also, her teacher let me look at her English literature coursework. It was riddled with hearts and Marx's subtext. I didn't accuse her immediately. First, we bonded over our mutual distaste for St Candida's. Claire's a quiet scholarship girl from a very normal family, attending a school obsessed with sports and breeding, so naturally she's completely overlooked. Of course, the most essential tool in a master criminal's kit is invisibility. The only reason Claire got the role of bottom was because someone dropped out at the last minute and Claire was the only one willing to learn the lines in time. And it was that desire to be looked upon and admired that led to her downfall. By stepping into the spotlight, she revealed herself. Claire's performance was a huge surprise to everyone, especially Miss Thomas, who said she was a selfish performer, hogging the stage, too flamboyant, too eccentric, too... good. Miss Thomas was very annoyed that Bottom took the focus away from her favourites. No doubt she was extra horrid to Claire once she realised the girl had talent. Naturally, I bonded with Claire over my own experience as a student with Miss Thomas and told her she was absolutely right about her brown nosing the rich. Claire stiffened in her seat for a moment, a deer in the headlights. She didn't deny it. Too much pride for that. I reassured her that I had no intention of dobbing her in because, uh, really, how could I? It was like looking in a mirror. Except, not really. Claire's got far more chutzpah than I ever had. Damn it. She's who I could have been if I'd had the guts. But I didn't completely let her off. I told Claire that I wouldn't reveal her identity to Trotter if she stopped being naughty. No more F.U.'s to the school. Claire was as still and focused as a chess master while I said my piece. And then she made a very good point. Trotter wouldn't settle for a mere cessation of criminal activity. She'll want to make an example with a very public punishment. She said, even if I feigned ignorance and asked to be released from the case, the trotter would find out I'd interviewed the cast of the Dream, and from there... Well, the headmistress is no fool, more's the pity. Damn it, it's the Binty case all over again. Why is the criminal so often preferable to the client? <sighs> there was no arguing with Claire's logic. Her days at St Candida's are numbered. I said it might be better if she turned herself in. Less humiliating. I offered to accompany her to Trotter's office for moral support. But she said no. She'd do it herself. She just needed a couple of hours to prepare. And then she broke for the first time, crying, It's not fair. I had so many plans. I'm barely halfway through the dossier. Yes, that's right. Dossier. Turns out she's been collecting intel on students and teachers for years. She's collated a file of incriminating and scandalous behaviour. Well... When she told me that, I replied very carefully indeed. Oh dear, I imagine the local newspapers would be interested in that sort of thing. Wouldn't it be shocking if they somehow got their hands on it? Claire blinked a few times before nodding. And then I said, I imagine St Candidas would do quite a lot to avoid that sort of bad publicity. If Trotter received a copy of the dossier from an anonymous source and realised what was at stake... I imagine she could be convinced to stop looking for trouble. If you know what I mean. And then I gave Claire a long, meaningful stare. Yes, all right. It probably wasn't the right thing to do. So I encouraged a student to blackmail the headmistress. But Trotter did the same thing to me, don't forget. So it's basically karma. Although it's probably not great that a student now has so much power over the school. Especially a somewhat rebellious, scheming student like Urquhart. But I think I made it very clear that she's to get herself out of trouble this time. And then she must become a model student. No more shenanigans. Maybe she'll do as I said? Hmm. I think I'd better keep an eye on her in case her moral compass goes awry. Maybe I can be a mentor of sorts? A responsible older sister? Oh, yes. <laughs> Maybe she can help me out with casework at the school holidays? Yes, she could be my work experience, girl. I could do with some help around here. Oh, except there won't be a here, will there? Time's up. Although, I wonder if Margot's even remembered our deal. I haven't seen her all day.
1: Betty.
0: Bugger. <sighs> Come in.
1: Hello, dear.
0: Hello, Margot. Gosh, has it been two years already? Time flies when you're having fun.
1: I'm glad to hear you've had fun.
0: Not just fun. Much more than fun. Not that it matters. Deal's a deal. I'm not going to try and squirm out of it. I don't have your money, I'm afraid. Not by a long shot. But I can sell the pinball machine and the car and my darkroom equipment. That'll square off most of the debt. And then it won't take me long to work off the rest. Two or three months at the park should be enough. And then a few more months to save up for an office in town. Not as fancy as this one, but it will be mine. And I'll be glad of it. Because I'm not going to give up, Margot. I'm going to be a PI, no matter how long it takes. But I also want to say, thank you. I don't think I did before, not properly. And I'm rather ashamed of that now. Because you've been very generous with me, Margot. You've given me the best start I could have hoped for. You gave me the time and money and space to figure out what the hell I'm doing. And so, I will happily work the waltzes for as long as it takes, if it means that I get to- Oh,
1: do stop talking, Betty. It's too late for speeches.
0: Oh. Sorry.
1: Let's get this done and dusted and then I can go to bed.
0: Right. Yes, of course. So, do I start Monday?
1: No, Betty. I want to renegotiate.
0: Renegotiate?
1: The terms of the debt. I don't want you to work at the park. You don't? Your heart won't be in it. You'll be bored. Distracted. You'll make mistakes. I can't risk that. Theme parks can be very dangerous places, you know.
0: Yes, I am aware. But, Margot, how do you want me to pay you back?
1: Well, for a start, not by selling your equipment. You'll still need it. Really? I'm sure you'll solve enough cases to pay me back. (laughs) And let's say... 15% interest on the debt
0: month-on-month. 15% interest? That's higher than a bank!
1: Oh, are they giving out free utilities and office space with bank loans nowadays?
0: Point taken. Thank you, Margot. Thank you. This... is more than I could have hoped
1: for. You're welcome. I quite like having a private detective in the park. (laughs) Good night, Betty.
0: Good night.
1: Oh, before I go, I couldn't help but hear. I think a work experience girl is a wonderful idea. Learning how to manage people is a most valuable experience.
0: (laughs) You sly old thing.
1: You have been listening to The Betty Tapes, a Mockery Manor miniseries, starring Hayley Ebonett as Betty, with Lindsay Sharman as Margot, and additional voices by Lawrence Owen. Written by Lindsay Sharman, directed by Lawrence Owen, with music, sound design, and editing by Lawrence Owen. Join us next month for the first episode of Season 3. <laughs>
0: fable and Folly network where fiction producers flourish
1: it's a tale of learning and healing
0: we've got a whole province going to see one overworked witch in a candy cottage that has been chewed to pieces by the local kids
1: of fairies and magic
0: Stop touching the sapphire of assessment i'm not touching it
1: i'm just putting my head near it as i focus my brainial waveforms on it stop it i'm not even touching it of struggle against the odds
0: this is my team They may not live up to your vision of a perfect, efficient department. They don't live up to my vision of a stampede in a barnyard. Ooh, Keeley, that's how you know it's working.
1: And now, it returns at last. Alba Salix, Royal Physician, Season 2. Alba Salix, Royal Physician, from Fable
0: and Folly. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts or look us up at fableandfolly.com.